I think the establishment um, has been a bit behind. And, and some of what we create created, and I consider myself a part of the establishment because I'm over 40 years old, um, I think that the, the young people who are out there in the streets don't really care what we have to say. And so I think that not, they're not only speaking to the white people in this country, but also to, to all of us, all of us in the establishment. I'm Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, my favorite job so far. Anyway, how, ought to be. how do you feel about, I, I can speak to how obviously how I feel about working on Triloquy. How do you feel about working on Triloquy? How does this job, Scott, your role as senior producer? Nice. That was <laughs> deftly handled. Thank you. How do you enjoy this position? It's a whole different set of muscles from what I'm used to. You know, three decades worth of announcing classical music on uh, public radio. Before that, I worked at a couple commercial stations with new rock formats. So this is, you know, it's just a whole different set of muscles. It's a whole different way to, to, to broadcast, to communicate. Do you, how can I say, do you watch what you say in an effort to keep your job here on Triloquy? <laughs> <laughs> From you? No. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that I'm, in the Triloquy today. <laughs> I, am, I am the mild one between the two of us. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to go there in the Triloquy. Born to be mild. Huge shout out to James Bennett II. Shout out to you. I'm rooting for you. We had a great conversation earlier today as we recorded this. Anyway, I'll um I'll talk a little bit more about that in the Triloquy, but I just wanted to jump right out. There was some stuff at the Sphinx conference this weekend. I heard. It was it was lit. So um hello everyone. Thank you for coming and checking out this eighty-six opus of triloquy um to the um returning listeners thank you so much this is how we do it because of you thank you so much to the new listeners welcome scott always says strap in do you Mm want to keep you want to keep that advice to them i think this is going to be a good one yeah so strap in well this opus of triloquy is made possible in part by the brewing change collaborative presenting in conjunction with modest brewing company let's talk about white supremacy scott i I don't really know how i feel about talking on that subject so i you know i have no no experience that's hilarious (laughs) this is a panel discussion about race injustice and equality you can join the conversation and submit questions at modestbrewing.com slash breathing conversations thank you so much big shout out to l for getting me in on this really great event um black history month scott this is our time to shine this is it no we're black all the time really you are (laughs) <laughs> yes, 365. <laughs> um, I'm taking a, a slightly, I always say I'm taking a new approach to Black History Month every year. I feel like this year what I felt like I wanted to do was shine lights on bits of contemporary history that have connections to contemporary culture uh, and what's going on. Uh, the one that I had uh, to bring in today has more connections with contemporary culture than I realize. We're going to put together... Uh, a TikTok challenge with 
a track by Drake that I like that features a very important black composer. I think that's a, an interesting little web we weaved there. Huh? <laughs> web we weave. <laughs> who are you? That's uh, tough to say. Who are you featuring for um, Black History Month? This first Black History Month opus of Triloquy. I wanted to give some love to a hometown artist here, right from St. Paul, is Dua Saleh. Uh, today's downbeat comes from Don Lemon. We have to talk about <laughs> something that really pissed me off uh, concerning equity with T- Tucker Carlson. But we we couldn't start a, a Black History Month opus of Triloquy with Tucker Carlson. I wasn't about to do it. So I'll, I'll just shout out Don Lemon. Shout out to you. What you think of Don? <laughs> I don't know, man. The, okay, look at you playing safe. <laughs> I do play it safe because when I whenever I see him on, it's... Every, it's all hair on fire rhetoric. Everything is terrible. And it just, it, it gets old. I can't watch it. It brings me down. Well, I, I told you over dinner that Don Lemon was not always, we, we did not always yeah. invite him to dinner. Say more to about the cookout. that. Well, I mean, we'll leave it. We're going to celebrate the black people for <laughs> for now. <laughs> but right. I just wanted to bring in um, Don Lemon. Shout out to him. I don't know if he'll come up again this month. But, but you know, jokes aside, in the grand scheme of things, in black history, when we talk about cable news broadcasts, Don Lemon will likely have a paragraph in some book. Oh, without or question, right? Without so, question. So, huge shout out to him. Uh, today's, I have two very special guests uh, today representatives from uh, Public Media for All, a coalition really bringing DEI to public media spaces, Ernesto Aguilar and Sway Stewart. Huge shout outs to them. Also, want to shout out Tamberly Ferguson, our, our, our good friend, um, for setting this um, uh, interview up uh, with me. I really appreciate you, Tamberly. Uh, there was one, oh, yeah, I, um, before. Before we got out of the announcements, I wanted to give a shout out to the Family Crest. I'll link their Tiny Desk performance in the description of this opus. They gave Triloquy a really nice shout out on Twitter. So thank cool. you to cool. the Family Crest. Again, thank you to all of the returning listeners. Thank you to the new listeners. Here's movement one. So as we check our accidentals, the weekend news and events with a sharp, a flat, or a natural. I wanted to uh, start off with a nice little sharp, I guess you would say, for uh, for your friend Radar. Cool. Update oh, yes, the people. of course. Yeah, thanks to everybody who wrote in with, uh, you know, uh, DMs and emails of support. Radar had the tumor removed and it was all good news. They got all of it with good margins, no sign of spread, and... Uh, no excessive bleeding. So the the healing process has been pretty quick. It's been good. And Radar will be running in no time. Yeah, he sure likes the this fuzzy rug on his belly, though. <laughs> yeah, he likes this rug a lot. So a quick, quick sharp there. So Yeah, thanks uh, to everybody who, who yeah. reached out. It really meant a lot. I, so much tension for me around surrounding that. And both he and I slept for, you know, all day on Wednesday when he came back home. You know, him because he was doped up and me because I hadn't slept for you know, however many days leading up to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, just wanted to, you know, Thank make, you. Make, make sure the people uh, uh, were updated there. Yeah, thanks for so, that. So uh, a couple of rest in powers and uh, rest in pieces to offer rest in peace, apostrophe S. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of this first movement, uh, how about you go first? Sure. You know that we had a full moon 
this past weekend, and it was the Wolf Moon. And a trans artist by the name of Sophie, who is a very spiritual person, very connected to uh, the natural world around her. She was in Greece. She was climbing to try to get to a place to get a, a better view of the moonrise. And just a tragic, uh, she fell and uh, died from whatever injuries that happened. But, you know, you talk about uh, having representation and being visible. She was very much that in the realm of dance music. And um, I, I even heard, I don't know if I agree with uh, noise pop. Lemonade, le, le, lemonade. Just a few years ago, she released uh, Oil of the Oil of Every Pearl's Uninsides. And that one has a track on it I liked a lot called Face Shopping. So check out those two. And uh, rest in peace to Sophie and uh, shout out to all of her friends and family that um, are dealing with that grief right now. It's rough to have a, a family member or a friend to leave us in that way. Right. It's one thing, you know, just an accident and just, you know, things can happen. Can't they? Yeah. Gratitude in all moments. You never know. Mm-hmm. You never know. Huh? Um, my rest in peace is, uh, to the late, the now late, great Cicely Tyson. That's right. I feel like for many years we were just hanging on, you know, people, people get, get older and get older. And Cicely Tyson just seemed to be hanging on and to keep pushing in. Uh, I think the first time, so this is the thing. My first thought when I thought of Cicely Tyson was uh, Tyler Perry and, and, and those movies, because she always, you know, had some sort of role on there. But as I'm scrolling through the, uh, you know, rest in peace, rest in power post for Cicely Tyson, I see LeVar Burton's post about roots and of course i've seen roots my my uh, dad showed us roots you know very very young yeah so when i saw the image of cicely tyson as kunta kente's mother mm-hmm. it just snapped me back and i was like oh wow of course so uh uh, uh an actor an actress who such a painted long so, life painted I mean, so many stories you know that was 77 78 how old was she when she died uh she lived from 1924 to 2021 Boy, longevity. Long, long, long time. Absolutely. An impactful life. I only hope to have the impact that she had mm-hmm. because the touching the different communities and all of the, the different stories that she would tell and, you know, always making sure that the next generation didn't forget. You know, we're talking about Black History Month. Yeah. That was always an aspect of what she did. Even again, back to roots, you know, being a part of helping black folks understand, you know, much less the white people to get a, a, a view into that as well so uh definitely rest in peace to uh cicely tyson um i thought we transition here with a little bit of that music from roots said roots uh had your mom tearing up yeah back when it was on tv it was an event it was a multi-night thing you know they either showed it in one or two hour blocks and you know they had to cut in commercials and all that but yeah that was an event the whole family watched it and i i remember mom being 
you know, she was back. She always had a Kleenex in her bra strap, you know, so she's back there dabbing her eyes. And yeah. um, I don't remember what scene or what part it was that happened. I remember her reaction more than the television show. I mean, I think about, and I haven't seen it since I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I think about that scene where they're breaking LeVar Burton in, you yeah. know, trying to get him to be uh, named Toby. Mm-hmm. Was it? Who? That's, that's today. That's today. You know, talk about, oh, wear a suit, cut your, let me not get into my bag. But mm. you, you you get what I'm saying. I think that's a that's a very traumatic scene, but a very important scene to understand. Not only as it, uh, as it applies to what slavery was and just really breaking black people, but how that respectability has continued all the way up into today. I was just about to say, are you, you're getting at respectability here, aren't you? Well, let's wait to the triloquy. So (laughs) uh, the next uh, accidental, I am going to put, I'm going to put a natural here because, you know, it's a little good, a little bad. I don't know. So if you tuned in last week, you'll remember that we had a little bit of breaking news. Mm -hmm. Again, shout out to Delaney, uh, shout out to Katie as well and everybody over there at uh, Classically Black. So uh, the news came in that uh, the Metropolitan Opera hired its first chief diversity officer. I'm reading from the New York Times here just a little bit. Uh, Marsha Sells, a former dancer who became an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn and the dean of students at Harvard Law School, has been hired as the first chief diversity offer of the, uh, officer of the Metropolitan Opera, the largest performing arts institution in the United States. So Scott, hmm. a very colorful resume there Mm -hmm. a lot of different experience experience uh with younger folks experience with a lot of money what do you think this is going to mean for the met you think having a a diversity officer is going to make the difference in an institution like that judging by the comments uh it seems to be more of an outcry just to pay the ones you've got now let me say in in this environment i think that whoever they would have hired into that position would have been like in the cartoons when a, uh, you know, when piranhas go after something and I pick just, anything away. I just hate that the comments have to be, and I understand why they're a part of the conversation, but I hate that the comments have to be a part of the conversation because I think we'd be so much, and not you and I, but just most mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. would be so much more elevated if we were talking about what this could mean for the Met, what. Uh, uh, opportunities are there, what uh, this diversity officer can take advantage of. But you're right. Since you bring up the comments, let's go over. Let's say that I I also (laughs) think that they are probably prepared for this. You know, they were probably, you know, they were probably ready for this response. Don't you think? I'll just I'll just read a few here. And I'm reading this to contextualize the drama that is the arts. So first of all, top comment I'm seeing here is, did you think this would make us like you again? This poor woman. Pay your musicians. So you see, there's already been drama at the Met with musicians and stagehands not getting paid. Right. Oh, COVID, but whatever. But you can hire a whole person. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's that's a complaint. Let's take a little uh, pay your musicians I'm seeing here. Uh, there was one that I wanted to make sure I put on the people's radar. It says, uh, looks like the Met is adhering to the get woke, get broke philosophy. You can't even afford to pay your musicians and workers and your business is in shambles. But you're going to piss away money hiring a diversity officer so you can appeal to the political crowd who was responsible for ruining your company in the first place. Brilliant. So they're mad. The people are upset. That looks like a shared <laughs> Facebook account. So what? So 
we have the Met seemingly trying to do right. We have the public saying it's too late. You you aren't paying your musicians. You y'all y'all are just messed up. So what is the Met to do? What is an institution like that to do at this point? What great, do you think? Great question because I have to wonder. Um, in the environment that we've got, like I said, it's just really hot. And anything that a company that has made missteps or an arts organization that has made missteps is going to do, they're going to be attacked. Yeah. But that, what does that mean you do? You stop? So for a little while, it's going to be tough sledding. I think that this diversity officer has a responsibility from the comments, you know, and as I, we're seeing there to make sure that, out to her. And my heart goes and we have to protect her at all costs, right, you know, pr- right. protect black women at all costs. We also have to hold her accountable. I think her first duty, her her first thing to do, one of the first things to do anyway, should be to answer the call and pay to the pay the musicians. Move that barrier out of the way so that the critiques of the existence of your position don't have anything else to say. That's a good point. And at and at the end of the day it's not even only for the folks in the comments is for the sake of all those musicians out here right. suffering and making making your best in the middle of Pasadena. <laughs> That's the new one I heard today. <laughs> I'm not making light of, of the situation. No. Um, but so, you know, shout out to Marsha Sells. Like I said, protect her at all costs. As far as the Met, I don't, I don't know what I don't know what the Met wants me to say to them. I mean, y'all never marketed to me. Y'all, y'all never programmed black music the way that it needed to be. So it's going to be a tough know. go for a while. So uh, Sophie, you mentioned Sophie earlier. Mm hmm. Uh, rest in peace once again. Sophie had collaborations with uh, a lot of people, and Nicki Minaj was one of them, I think you uh, mentioned. She teamed up with Nicki Minaj, Madonna, and Diplo for a track called Bitch, I'm Madonna. <laughs> All right, yeah, I remember that. So look at that, just co- connections that, that you never know. Well, when you mentioned that, it made me think of a tune that Nicki Minaj (laughs) did a while ago. When I think about the Met, when I think about all of these people upset, it it just brings to to mind, that's why you're mad. So here's a little Mm -hmm. bit of that as we transition. All right, Scott, so rounding out the accidentals here, I'm going to give I'm, I'm going to give a sharp to the people because apparently they have the stock market and the hedge funders upset for Stunks. some reason. <laughs> OK, so uh, maybe two, three, two, maybe even three days before all of the stock market, GameStop, AMC stuff was hitting the news. Mm-hmm. Dell was telling me that some stuff was going down on Reddit, you know, because he gets into all of, uh, of those rabbit holes and all that sort of thing. And I didn't mm-hmm. think too much of it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all oh, the Redditors are up here doing something. But here we are. The whole system is acting like it has to change because some people came together and did something. So for the people who, like me, <laughs> who need it in clear terms... What's happening? Short selling, um, as I understand it, let's say you have uh, 10 shares of GameStop. And I will borrow some shares from you to take advantage of these higher prices. After they're sold off, I give you your shares back and maybe give you a percentage, a cut of what I made. And then I pocket the rest. 
Okay, so you're taking you're taking advantage of like a artificially high price. And let's face it, some of these hedge fund people, they're doing it to you every day. And then when the everyday people get together and start doing, they don't like that. So isn't, what, that, isn't that fun? So so what you think? You're just siding with the people here? You're, I, you're, you're, you're I, on the people side? I'm sitting back and watching it because I've got my I've got my little micro share app. You know, I use Stash. Also, you're in on it. You finna be a millionaire. Look at you I, funding Triloquy. I, 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 <laughs> I fund corporate can, cannabis. <laughs> corporate cannabis and uh, like baby Berkshires. So okay. Warren okay. Buffett. Well maybe they'll maybe they'll puff one of those up. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. Let's see. Yeah, let's let's make it happen. <laughs> you heard, heard it from Scott. Y'all heard it. You heard it from Scott. So yeah, they, basically they're pissed because the, the people who usually get gamed are gaming the gamers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how? So this was my question. How can we make this benefit the arts and maybe even black folks in the arts? Is there a every instrument maker that all that the professionals use? I don't think that those stocks are big enough or considerable enough. I mean, there everyone's heard of Yamaha and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. What instrument family plays? They make Yamaha bassoons is what I'm trying to say, but I play a fox and the people who are even fancier play heckles, you know, so every instrument has, you know, when I think of flute, I think of Powell or uh, Miyazawa, I think that's the name of them. So all, all of these instruments have their own things that I don't think matter to the stock market like that. So I wonder if there's a, a music something or art something. I don't know if they go after Guitar Center because <laughs> because Guitar Center is already in Their trouble. Toes up. Yeah. When that when they have the clearance, you better know I'm gonna be in there with my mask on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fire it's something sale. in there. I'm, I'm some more pedals or another keyboard. Right. Hey, you could get your flying V. I don't know. <laughs> We're none, this isn't insider trading. Leave me alone, IRS. We're not saying go buy a game. Uh, what were we talking about? Guitar Center right. or whatever. But I think it might be too late on Guitar Center. But uh, <laughs> they're a lost cause. <laughs> I think they might already have filed. Well, and I don't laugh because it's jobs lost. But you know, the capitalist structure just does not work. We we need to reframe all of this. this I was, is what it, what it is. This is and this is my plug to go and buy. If you want to start learning an instrument, go and buy from a local shop because they they need you right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Black History Month. Which, as we transition into the second movement, you had a, a Barrett Strong song that uh, I think you said might <laughs> go well here. What was what was the name of that song? It's called Money. What made that song come to mind? The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees I want more. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Blankenship. Now let's let Barrett Strong do it. Here's that as we get into the second movement. Be nice to your weight staff. They're working hard for you tonight. What, what track are you going to sing? I sing on this podcast a lot. But what We're, are you going to sing today? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not singing today. I, I gave mm. y'all a whole spiritual on a couple Halloweens ago. <laughs> you what, didn't do no what, singing. What have you done for us lately? <laughs> anyway, movement two. Strike mm. a chord, talking about the music that moved us. Before uh, we do it, Scott, and before we get into um, your, your folks, uh, your music for the week, I want to have a very, very, very quick conversation about pronouns. So this is something that in the past, I would say maybe four months, three, four months, I've 
had to actively work on yeah, because I don't want to misgender people. Mm-hmm. We're, we're on the mics and we say a lot of words and sometimes some fly by. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that this is warning. I might misgender. Scott might misgender someone. I just want to acknowledge that this is something that is a work in progress for me. Uh, I want to acknowledge that from my perspective, when we talk about pronouns and using the right pronouns, especially using the pronoun they for people who don't want to uh, use he or she, you know, who are non-binary or otherwise, I think, you know, that aversion to that represents just an aversion to the binary because it's been so inherently violent for so many people, namely women. We were talking about over dinner being Mr. Somebody is different than being Miss versus Mrs. It's just as one example of ways in which the binary can just fuck it all up and has, you know, since the, the, the beginning of time. So if there's anybody listening who is confused about why this, uh, you never know who's listening. If there's anybody who's, you know, confuse as to why and, and doesn't quite understand the whole pronoun converse, conversation, just consider that point that some people don't acknowledge the binary. Mm-hmm. And as we continue, Scott, to acknowledge that, I just wanted to make sure that I named that and uh, make sure that we're very, very active and intentional about pronouns, especially as we talk about the artists that uh, you brought in. Today. That's right. Yeah. It's a work in progress for me too, Garrett, for sure. But I want to give uh, some love to St. Paul's own Dua Soleil. And they are a writer, producer, musician, poet, a little bit of everything. Uh, they recently were cast in the Netflix show Sex Education. Mm. So shout out to Dua. Congratulations for that. Um, also doing some uh, acting around the Twin Cities. And I came across some of their music. Um, it, it was so familiar to me to hear their ingenue-esque sort of voice, uh, the way they use um, orchestra hits and loops. Um, it just it, it felt a lot like the music that I was listening to in the late 80s and early 90s, like the trip-hop sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of stuff. Um, and... I want to go back to one that they have that really warmed me up called Sugar Mama. I have a friendly neighbor. She want to be my savior. Her daddy always warns about my family's behavior. She wonders about my flavor. Those chocolate coated layers. She looks me up or down her pussy melting like a glacier. Bodacious belly flopper. Her daddy flies a chopper. She talks about her charities and work he has to offer. She dining. It's just got sort of a. Mm. Mm. But um, recently, in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, they released uh, a new track where all of the proceeds on Bandcamp, you can find it on Spotify, but I encourage you to go to Bandcamp and actually purchase it because the um, all of the proceeds are going to go to Black Visions Collective. Um, that release is called Bodycast, and my favorite track on that one is Angel Rock.
Sounds like a bodied body cast. Body cast, yeah. <laughs> um, and Dua, just congratulations on all yeah. your success recently. I mean, they are having uh, success on the screen as well as in the studio. Uh, and shout out St. Paul. Yeah. There are a lot of people listening who don't live in Minnesota, have never been to Minnesota. So I can speak to thinking that there are no black folks here. Mm -hmm. There just couldn't be black folks, much less a black culture. And I think this artist is a great example of the rich and diverse black culture that exists not only here in Minnesota, but everywhere. It's so incredible. And, uh, And in a world where I think we all need to be paying attention more as far as supporting local buying local yeah. um yeah. And, and important so yeah um congrats um and uh and godspeed goddess speed <laughs> goddex speed <laughs> <laughs> write that one down you need to coin that um so records albums we've i think we've had the conversation on triloquy before but when we talk about an artist um recording a project uh, an ep a mixtape versus an album we're talking about something that you can really listen to especially from uh, back in the days mm-hmm. of listen to a mm-hmm. vinyl right you just let it play you know speaking of um Shopping local. I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the name of the uh, place in downtown St. Paul right now. Eclipse. Eclipse Records. Yes, thank you, Scott. Oh, uh, Dell and I have been down there just seeing what they got. I've pulled out some classical, uh, bought some of the uh, new stuff that they, you know, uh, current stuff. Um, and there's everything in between. So one of the things I got for uh, the holidays from Dell was uh, a vinyl of drake's scorpion his album from 2018 Mm. the digital is one that you know played a big role uh in my life back then the the summer of 2018 because scott if you'll remember that's when Dell and i moved to minnesota so there were a lot of days of just kind of riding the bike and exploring and what is this new town and all that stuff so that was one of the albums that was in my ears at the time and when you're listening to music digitally it's easy to skip through stuff and oh this is my favorite song and go there and x y and z but when you're listening to a vinyl you really have the uh, opportunity to let it all play and just go there. So I was doing that with this album that, you know, I have the uh, vinyl to, and I was sort of reintroduced to a song that admittedly I did hit skip on a little bit, but after letting it play on that vinyl, it's now one of my favorite songs. I, I think I've listened to it about 20 times today. It's a tune by Drake called Don't Matter to Me, and it features the vocals of Michael Jackson. And I think when we talk about Black History Month, as I said in the introduction, it's easy for us to go way back and focus on that. And I feel like as important as Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, William Grant still, you know, pillars mm-hmm. in black culture and black music and American music. We also can't forget about the ones who we were able to see. And hearing Michael Jackson's voice on the track that, first of all, in itself, sort of has that summer evening sound. It reminds me of those early days again in St. Paul, riding around with the top down in the evening. I wasn't quite on the overnights yet, still maybe in training or whatever, but going home at night. And just a fresh feeling that sounded to my ears like fresh air. So I wanted to make sure that I honored, um, you know, my favorite male rapper, as I say, but Mm. also the late Michael Jackson. He really did it from childhood all the way up to death, 
gave us so much stuff. Shout out to them both. Here's a little bit uh, of that track called Don't Matter To Me. is that one of my favorite tracks right now. There's a bit of black history connected to it. I'm reading here from Genius. It says, in 1983, Paul Anka and Michael Jackson linked up for a recording session for an ultimately shelved collaboration. Jackson's vocals from the session remain unused until shortly after his death when their song, This Is It, appear as the title track on Jackson's first posthumous album. So from that same session was a collaboration between Paul Anka and Michael Jackson that included those vocals to Don't Matter To Me. Mm. It's a it's a recording that would have uh, have would have just been collecting dust and would have been black history for real right shelf somewhere right <laughs> yeah but 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 shout out to drake for and and his team you know not just drake i i should really make a point to you know make it clear that when we talk about sampling there are teams of people just sifting through the whole world of music you know think about scott remember back in season one we talked about um jay-z big pimpin mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. somebody on jay-z's team found some egyptian i think it's egyptian or you know uh, uh middle eastern music that and was like never oh, that been could... heard here before. Right, right right and did it so that's the same thing with this michael jackson so you know keeping black history alive it happens it happens everywhere and this you know when we talk Talk about Michael Jackson. We're talking about a classic figure in Black communities and in in world history. So and yeah. Paul Anka was in the room. Paul Anka was in the room, and apparently Scott, you were telling me that he uh, has a a, a a new newfound place in contemporary culture. As yeah, well. he's had a he's trending, I guess you could say, by way of the silhouette challenge on social media right now. That line: "Put your head on my shoulder." Let's put your head on my shoulder by Paul Anka. <laughs> yeah. Bring it, bringing it all back around. <laughs> and, and the kids probably have no idea, do they? Well, you know, if you want to go back and look at it, you can, but it's not, it's not, it's not required listening. <laughs> so uh, today's guests, uh, once again, uh, two representatives from Public Media for All, Ernesto Aguilar and Sway Stewart. I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, Public Media for All website. That's publicmediaforall.com. It says, we are a diverse coalition of public media workers led by people of color. We are raising awareness for the negative effects of a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in public media and sharing solutions for individuals and organizations um you know scott we talk a lot about the streaming services the dsps very important to support the ones that are black owned and that are popping up i think it's also important to support initiatives like this that are trying to save the institution of public radio you've told the story about parking and the way that you got into radio yeah. but surely there over the years maybe even early on a love specifically for what public radio is or what it could it be was, a, was sparked in it you. was a hundred percent what it what it was mm -hmm. the or or is the the idea that people out there like what you're doing so much they'll give you a couple bucks direct yeah it's that reciprocal relationship that did it for me yeah i, I i'm it's similar for me I, I think i may have talked about it uh in the interview but that first uh membership drive i was on the air literally 
for like four weeks and this is in my life, not at this radio station. So a month in, I'm doing a membership drive, but I'm putting everything into it because I want to show them, look, I can raise some money for y'all and this is important and and it worked, mm, you know. Nice. <laughs> Shout out to WUOT. Uh it's it's cool that you know one of the many 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 things we can talk about public radio is it gives a lot of people a start. That's the end. There are a lot of people who go to college for broadcast journalism and and go in that way. For others of us, public radio station said Come on, we'll give you a try. And here we are, working on Triloquy. Internships, <laughs> um, a lot of public radio stations are frequently located on university campuses. So mm-hmm. there's uh, a chance for people to get real hands-on, usable experience. Yeah, public radios, public media, let's say, TV and radio both are, I, I was brought up on it. Love it. Yeah. Well, uh, to transition into that conversation uh, over dinner, Scott, I had the vinyl uh, of Scorpion on and there was a little interlude that caught your ear, a little radio thing. What, what did it, what, tell me what it reminded you of again? Pillow talk. Pillow talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's on the easy listening station late at night when the, when the host gets real close to the microphone and starts right. introducing earth, wind and fire tracks and fat burger. And, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know if it was Pillow Talk at the end of Drake's After Dark, the little interlude, but uh, still same vibe, really sexy. (laughs) And I think it's just one example of how even just the sounds of radio can be nostalgic, even if it isn't uh, the same thing. So here's the interlude that follows Drake's After Dark. And here's my conversation with Ernesto and Sway from Public Media for All. 93.7 93.7 WBLK. Tide you're not in the quiet storm. Taking you right there with hollow notes. Moving you through the storm at what is now 19 minutes after 10 o'clock. Thanks for your phone calls as we get you closer to your requests and dedications. Phone lines are open for you to send the love. Your love note dedications at 644-9393 to call me. Now is the time, if not before today. You know, I think that this is a huge chance for the public radio market to really reach out to the black community and to marginalized communities. So I would say this is the beginning. Let's make this the beginning and let's not miss this chance. Would you agree with that, Ernesto? Is this just the beginning? I think for me, the big challenge is talking with leaders and helping them understand the potential financial incentive, frankly, of reaching out to these new audiences. I think a lot of them understand it in a very generic kind of way, but don't really understand the power of the black dollar or the millennial dollar or the Latino dollar and what that really means. And I hate to put it in those kinds of terms, but frankly, you have so many organizations that are very, very large, that have very large staffs and will not change unless there's financial incentive to do so. And without having uh, more clarity from leader in leadership to say, okay, there's a real opportunity here for this organization to grow far beyond what our wildest expectations can be. Um, There's a lot of resistance just in general. Yeah, that's actually an incredible point. Sway, I I wonder if you could um, expound upon that when we talk about the millennial dollar, the the black dollar. What is being missed uh, in the understanding by these public media institutions as far as that point specifically is concerned from your perspective? Well, first of all, 
it's a business case, just as Ernesto said, if if we're not reaching millennials, then, well, first of all, we already know we're way behind in that game. If we look at TV, for instance, or if we look at over the top with Netflix and Spotify and, or sorry, Spotify is with, with digital media too, but even those over the top platforms, those streaming platforms, they have done the work to reach millennial audiences. They have created social media campaigns. They have gone into communities. They have done a lot of outreach to millennials and specifically to black and Latino and Asian uh, audiences. So already public radio is behind in that. So if public radio wants to exist in the years to come, then they need to strategically ensure that they are reaching, prioritizing this reach so that when the time comes where millennials want to give and know that the organizations are in line with their with their values, then they will give and support us and we will ensure that we continue. Because otherwise, if we just keep super serving the core white audience, we'll, we know that we're going to miss, we're, we're, we're leaving money on the table, so to speak. Right, right. You know, a, a big part of that moving forward is understanding um, the past. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, when we talk about things um, like reparations and and other things that are rising to the top of the discourse these days when it comes to racial equity, I wonder what public, uh, what this coalition, this public media coalition, um, how, how it can address past wrongs, because there are certainly communities and even individuals who have been um, hurt or damaged or traumatized in very measurable ways? In what way can the Public Media Coalition address that need? Ernesto, you want to start? I, I sure will. And I want to add a postscript to the, your first question, which is that I, I want to extend my support to those as well who feel a sense of despair with public media and who say, um, this is just not for me because I, I have gotten, just had it up to here with this kind of uh, behavior that happens in these organizations. Please remember, there are a lot of other organizations within the non-commercial media space that need people like yourselves because public radio is fr frankly a prestige brand. It is not an FCC designation. That's non-commercial educational broadcasting. So there is a spectrum of organizations that need people like yourselves and donors like yourselves. As well, the FCC later on this year will be opening up a new window for non-commercial uh, non full power licenses. So there are many communities that have this real opportunity to do more broadcasting that is directed for our communities. The issue that I think you're raising is an important one, and I think it's a real challenge for us as public media for all, because part of the issue has been for so long that it's been extremely difficult to really understand the scope of this issue. There are some high-profile cases like yours, but there are many, many more who, which we likely will never hear about because those individuals have decided it is just not in my interest to speak up or I exactly. could face repercussions if I want to be hired on elsewhere. And there are people who are just afraid and just 
can't or or just won't for various reasons. So it's been extremely difficult for us to find data. Within our action plan, we do ask that organizations apologize. But frankly, I think it's very clear to us and our conversations with workers in this space, with organizations even, that there are organizations that probably do need to do a lot more than apologize. We're talking restitution and much, much more. But at this point, I think we're trying to really get our hands around how large this issue is for public media, for workers and staff, for leadership, and for governance, because I think that part oftentimes gets overlooked. Sway. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak a little bit to the apology portion. And, and, you know, we have seen some organizations who have publicly apologized for past harm that has been caused in terms of how employees were treated or how communities were continued to be ignored in reporting or in outreach or in those types of efforts. And we all know though that words are just words. We really are committed to action. We look at the pledge that we've established as a roadmap in terms of providing that guidance that organizations can can look to and point to and ensure that they are completing what we've outlined within a three-year period so that we're not just continuing to use words or to have scripted dialogues with our station members or with our, you know, our internal constituents, but actually doing the work. And so we really want to ensure that we don't continue to experience this type of behavior or see this type of behavior, you know, four or five years from now after we continue to kind of have these conversations or dialogues or, or whatever it is, but not seeing the action take place, not really getting, sinking our teeth into what needs to change. And so there's accountability attached to that. And we're hoping that leaders especially will make those tough decisions and say, it, maybe it's me that has to move to the side or step aside to allow for emerging leaders to come in and take my place, knowing that they're more equipped to to do this work, or maybe it's time for us to ask some individuals to leave because they have harmed people. They have not contributed to creating an encouraging culture for everyone. So, you know, of course it all remains to be seen, but like I said, and, and what Ernesto has shared, we really want to make sure that it's not just words as an apology, but there's action behind it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned four to five years from now, and, and I think that's where I want to jump next. You know, this new audience and this new engagement requires new content and requires a new approach to the content. There are folks like me who want to flip the switch and let's, you know, let's disrupt the system. There are other folks who believe in more incremental change. Ernesto, um, public media for all is closer to which one of those ideas or maybe or maybe a, a mix of both. I think we are certainly on the up end things kind of way in a lot of ways in the in the sense that um, a lot of these organizations have talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many of them understand on some intrinsic level that DEI is an important concept. We have come to the table with a radical concept that DEI is nothing without accountability. 
And so we've decided that it is important for organizations to hold themselves accountable. And there's an advantage to holding ourselves accountable to our donors, to our staff, and to our boards, and to our le- to the leaders themselves and everyone. And that, as strange as I would, it, that feels coming out of my mouth, that is, unfortunately, in public media, a really radical concept that we should be accountable. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes when people hear accountability, uh, they recoil a little bit and feel like this is about shame. But in many regards, accountability is being more transparent with the public, being more transparent with our staff and switching our business models from this top-down conversation that has been so prevalent in public media to one in which leadership and staff work together to create a much stronger organization. That change is happening, but I, again, come back to this point to say this feels like such a radical concept for many organizations in a very positive and liberating way, but it's something that is nevertheless the case. And of course, Sway, when it comes to changes like that, in my experience, the comeback is always, well, the audience is or the audience is used to or how, how do you how do you respond to uh, or I, I'll ask, how uh, does public media for all respond to the accusation that the audience base might not be ready for these radical changes? Well, you have to make sure that you are doing two things. And one is we have to realize that we can continue to serve our core audience, the core white audience that we know continue to come to our stations time and time again and support the work that we're doing. But you can also uh, change your your strategy to reach out to communities that you have not yet served or not yet met and provide programming that will speak to their needs. And so you can't really just change the programming and expect the audience to come and find you if you've never created those relationships, if you've never actually gone to folks and say, did you know that we have this program about the Black history in, in our community? Or, mm-hmm. or do you want to be a part of that conversation? Or how can we learn in what your needs are? And so, you know, you have to, again, you have to realize that that may require you to drop some initiatives that continue to serve your existing audience and focus on meeting new people in your community. And it takes it, like I said, it takes it may take recognizing that you, you, the individual, the programmer, the outreach director, whomever has that responsibility, doesn't have that skill set. They just don't have that experience, and so they're e- either going to have to be vulnerable and step aside, or make you know have a relationship, or make relationships, or, or find a way to reach those communities, uh, or that decision will be end up being made for them. So I think it'll be interesting to see. I I am, we know that in our country, we have always used that quote, these things take time and we have to wait and we have to be patient. But we, because of that kind of sentiment, no real change has taken place in our country. We continue, we are moving backwards in, to some degree. So we, we have to push forward. We have to stop that talk that these things take time. And we have to have leaders who are willing to pivot very quickly, willing to go against what they know and find the right people to do that work. I also have to add that I wonder how much of this is frankly, lazy or generational. I think there's a conventional wisdom that the audience wants to hear particular things. And frankly, and Pew Research and many other studies have demonstrated this, 
white audiences and audiences of color want to get greater context and want to have their views expanded because generally, generationally, the world is changing around us. Demographically, the world is changing around us. And we've sometimes gotten so frozen in our positions because uh, going back to the earlier part of this conversation, it feels like we may be endangering our financial position by changing. But frankly, mm -hmm. the audience is already changing around us. Conversations around race and culture and politics are in mainstream America and on in coffee shops all around the country. If we've decided that we want to shy away from that, there are plenty of other media outlets that are happy to serve that up if we've decided that we would rather retreat out of fear of potentially offending someone who may not think diversity is important. Mm -hmm. You know, Sway, a question that I've learned to hate, uh, in, you know, since May and, and George Floyd and, and everything was, well, what can I do to help? What can I do? Because that always feels like labor being put back on me for a problem mm -hmm. that I did not cause. With that being said, Public Media for All has laid out how people can do or, or what they can do specifically with these action items. Understanding that, and, and I'll link um, the, the webpage in the description of this for folks to go take a look, understanding that each of the action items is important and vital. What would you say is a potential starting point for this organization that has no experience even um, engaging this conversation, much less putting action behind it? Yeah, so I would say definitely the first thing is if you have zero experience and a lot of discomfort around this, I encourage organizations to look at our pledge page and sign and do whatever it takes, muster up the courage. Don't, don't try and get full board support uh, in terms of your leadership, but at least get to, to the place where if you can get an overwhelming support of realizing we don't know this, but we know that we need to do something because it means it, it could impact us in the future. Just do, just get on the pledge, sign the pledge. And through that, organizations will find support in hearing and seeing what other stations who are further along in their journeys, hear what they're doing, hear about the, the challenging barriers or dialogue that they've had, whether it was with their board or whether it was with members of their leadership team or maybe even with their frontline staff members. So they'll at least have that chance to create a space or be a part of a space where they can get through those difficult conversations. So that's the, so that's the first step. And I, I, like, I wanna kind of take a step back and, and share what you had said about you know how can I how can I help? Because I think we hear that a lot from individuals, you know, especially our white colleagues who mm -hmm. who in our industry they 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 want to be seen as good people, you know, they want to be seen as not racist, and they want to kind of be the Know that they because they are a part of the public a part of public media because they are a part of an industry that has a very high moral ground that they that they are a par part of the solution and not part of the problem right and so a lot of times although I appreciate and want to have conversations with our white allies and our white colleagues I really want to make sure that they are working with with one another in holding each other accountable and having those tough dialogues 
around race, around the discomfort about talking about race, around privilege, around whiteness, uh, around you know the norms that exist in our in our industry and in our society that center whiteness as uh, you know just just normal and right. and everything else outside of of those norms as different or uh, diverse or what have you. So I that is something that I continue to remind white people who come and speak to me or ask for guidance is what are you doing to to hold these conversations with your peers? How are you advancing yourselves? What are you reading? And um, we've created a, a list of resources that are for our you know white peers who who are interested in doing the work and want to do the work. And then I also want to say there are a lot of times and part of the work that I do is I have developed through not only public media for all, but also in these uh, town halls that I hold for BIPOC identifying employees who work in public media. I want to make sure that they're okay. You know, I want to make sure that we're culture is shifting in an organization or in our industry so that they can thrive, so that they can make sure that when they are, uh, you know, when, when they're asked or if they want to be promoted or if they even want to enter the industry or move to a different station, we'll even say that mm -hmm. they're going into a situation where they're going to be welcomed, where they can, where they can absolutely be themselves and not have to fit some mold that they, uh, that may feel impossible for them to fit. So I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm creating that those dialogues just for us so that we can at least share ex experiences. And believe me, we can even learn from one another in terms of what stations are and aren't doing the work and, and at least allow that dialogue to place, take place so that we are making sure that there's advancement in our industry or at least in stations and, you know, so that we don't continue to be in front of harm. Or, or placed in positions of harm. Ernesto, the the starting points, the conversations, the listening, that's one thing. Actually putting action um, into the action items uh, listed on Public Media for All, that's another conversation. Um, what have you found is uh, a challenge for some of the um, public media institutions? Are there are there points on uh, the, the action list that seem to just be um, out of reach for, for, for some of these institutions? I think anytime you're talking about people and accountability as individuals or systems, the ways that people are used to doing things, that always tends to be the toughest conversation because, as Sway pointed out, no one wants to think that they are part of the problem. Mm. And similarly, if we've gotten used to doing things in particular ways and that's just worked fine for us for years and years and years, that can be a real challenge to say, okay, maybe we need to change up some of these processes to make them more inclusive. Maybe we need to work on training for staff to ensure that they understand that there is language they can use or different work behaviors they can engage in to be a more inclusive workplace. Those kinds of things I think can be challenges, but I think how you word them and how you present them to people as opportunities for professional development can real, be a real benefit for organizations. But that being said, I think that tends to be the most difficult thing. 
I'll stick with you, Ernesto. You know, you mentioned the signatories. There are signatories present on the website, and there are institutions who are not present on the website. In the grand scheme, let's say a year from now, five years from now, there are still institutions unable or unwilling to uh, to come along with this coalition from Public Media for All. What should we do <laughs> with, with, with those with those institutions? And and I'll I'll add this on. Uh, you know, living here in the Twin Cities uh, last summer told me a lot, taught me a lot about what individuals, um, I'll say how individuals respond to a certain institution within an organization. I'm not saying that these public radio institutions um, should be stormed or, or sieged, but there, there has to be something, right? Absolutely. For me, the biggest issue is just consistent engagement around these issues. Listeners and staff need to continue to talk to managers, board members, and stakeholders around the importance of these issues. They need to also be reflecting what kind of coverage and what kind of music and what kind of cultural exchanges with their communities they want to see more of, not just as a negative, we want you to do more of this because you don't do it, but here's what's happening in our community and make that a consistent message as frequently as possible. As well, I think it's important for those of us who are in organizations to begin to really build coalitions internally with various stakeholders and leaders in various positions. Every movement takes people of all kinds. So the fact is there may be people who are very enthusiastic about change and some that are a little bit more passive to it, but see there is value to putting their names on it from time to time and then figuring out how we can begin to build a consensus within an organization. We've been fortunate enough to have some very prominent organizations that are participating in public media for all. That being said, that's a very small group so far. We just barely got started, however, some looking forward to growing. Uh, however, it's going to take a little bit of time and a lot of education with a lot of organizations. I still run into organizations that, again, going to our earlier conversation, kind of generically get the DEI is important, but it isn't until this conversation they begin to realize what accountability should be for an organization. And going beyond, as Sway pointed out, these good intentions to really putting forward action that really influences and makes a difference in communities. It makes a difference to workers, staff, and future leaders in these organizations. Yeah, Sway, uh, uh, Ernesto mentioned good intention. You know, a lot of that good intention um, surrounds ideas of what diversity is, you know, what are BIPOC communities. But in those conversations, um, there's been growing concern among the black communities specifically that BIPOC initiatives disproportionately benefit people of color who are not black. I wonder if you can speak to Public Media for All's ideas specifically on black equity and engaging black communities through this coalition? Sure. When Sachi reached out to me with this idea of creating public media for all, I wanted to make sure that we intentionally included Black voices in our coalition. And we, I helped her and we worked together to come up with a few people who are had been very vocal or had been, who had received some poor treatment and we knew wanted to be a part of this type of movement. And so through them, we have really ensured that 
we we don't shy away from talking about race and talking about uh, the experiences of Black employees in our industry. We we want to make sure that you know it's very easy to get wrapped up in the all of the BIPOC or POC or whatever the terminology is of the day when it comes to talking about people of color or marginalized groups. And we will continue to reach out to black employees and uplift their voices. If you were a part of the day of action and education on November 10th, you know, we had several employees who've been in the industry for years speak to their experience. And we even, you know, as we meet with organization leaders, there are times where they want to shift the conversation away from, uh, you know, race and more around uh, other types of identities, whether it's ability, whether it's gender, which, you know, can get away from the goal. And the goal is that we realize it, is, it isn't an issue right now around uh, gender when it comes to being inclusive. It is about race. That is the, diff the most difficult dialogue to have. And there continues to be, we have seen the numbers in terms of there has been very little growth in black employees or Latino employees moving into positions of power in our industry. I have only met a handful of black GMs that is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be honest with ourselves as an industry and figure out what it what needs to take place so that we can have Black and Latino and uh, other marginalized groups be a part of those leadership positions. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of going back to what you shared too, so many movements that have taken place, it has always been Black people who have led those movements but Latinos and Asians realize the power of our voices. And so they want to be a part of that. Personally, you know, if you ask me, uh, and I will admit I am, I'm African, I'm Kenyan, and I am biracial. So my experience, my upbringing is very different than an African American who's grown or grown up here. But I, I am married to a black man. I am married to an African-American man. So I see so much of his and feel so much of ex his experience through the conversations that we have, through the experiences that I've seen him be a part of and the treatment that he's experienced. So, you know, I will say, look, we can lift everyone's boat if we work together, but we have to recognize that there is differences we are fighting different types of oppression. And as long as people are in our group and in, in the BIPOC community recognize that are, and can have that conversation, then I'm okay with calling it whatever you wanna call it. I really appreciate that. And you know, when you, when you mentioned fighting oppression, it, it brings me to the, uh, to the last thing I wanted to ask the both of you. I'll, I'll sort of uh, frame it um, and from my experience, so when fighting fighting against oppression um, in the world of classical music specifically, it's easy to forget how much I love Mozart's Magic Flute, or you know, what, what, whatever piece of music that's sort of been integral um, to my training. 
uh, d- despite uh, inequitable programming and, and X, Y, and Z, you know, it's sort of easy to forget that this is something that um, we love. Expanding that out into radio, into public media, Ernesto, why do you want this thing to survive? What is it about public media that you love so much? What is the power from your perspective of public media? I told this story in current newspaper in 2017, so I'll make it a little bit shorter. People can read it there if they would like, but I was born and raised in East Houston, working class Mexican-American neighborhood. Public radio was not a part of my experience at all. It was not a part of my family's experience or anyone in my neighborhood's experience. But if you were raised in a military family as I was, you'll know that nine o'clock was lights out. Mm -hmm. So at 16 years old, it was lights out at nine o'clock, but chances are we put ourselves all at 16 years old. We're not tired at nine o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. However, I could listen to the radio and not wake up my parents. So I would find myself late at night scanning the radio dial, just listening to things because I was bored. And one night, just on accident, I happened upon public radio. It completely changed my perspective of the world because I grew up around Tejano and Norteño music. I grew up in a very small community that was pretty much stayed in that community. To be exposed to the arts, to be exposed to music I wasn't aware of, to be exposed to history and conversations transformed my life and it made me want to do something else with my life. And I understand the transformative power of public radio because I experienced it. I was a program director at a radio station for 11 years, and it was hard work. But the thing that I always kept in mind, even when the days were the hardest, was that I'm not doing this because of the people in the building. I'm doing this to make a difference in someone's life who is going to hear the station when they need it the most. And that's really what inspires me to continue to do this work because these stations we take for granted, people we never will ever meet are going to be exposed to them and they too may have a light shined into their lives that they didn't know existed and it may change the direction of what their dreams are and what their aspirations are. And I hope that even when we are at our most down point around public media, and there's a lot of reasons to be down Mm -hmm. sometimes, that we remember the value of what this is about and who this is really for. What about you, Sway? Man, I have to follow Ernesto. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I would say for me, my entry point into public radio was more in college when I worked at KPBS in San Diego as a student going to SDSU. I, I did listen to a little bit of public radio as a child. It's very similar, actually, Ernesto, to you in that after hours, I needed something quiet and I would turn on uh, the radio station in Buffalo where I grew up and it would switch over to classical, I think, around 9, 9 p.m. or so. And that's what I'd fall asleep to. But I never really put, I didn't put two and two together that that was public radio. You know, I was used to, my parents would watch PBS NewsHour or they would watch, you know, public television. I grew up on Sesame Street, but I'd never really recognized the importance of public radio until I worked at the station. And what I loved about working at a station, first of all, that hired and, uh, had an opportunity for students to work there Mm. was how passionate students 
student employees were even, you know, journalists, journalism employees like myself, I, I went to school for journalism, were very passionate about the storytelling, the stories that take place and can be told through radio without images, really hearing voices, adding background music, adding B-roll, uh, you know, sounds to, to add to those stories. And it's a much deeper experience than what you see on commercial television when it comes to news. And so, you know, I think that that's something that we have to to, to continue in 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 when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to reporting. It is a different way of hearing and con connecting with people, connecting with humans, and it's something. It's, I know that it's not for everyone. I know that that radio is not for everyone. And, and especially in this day and age where streaming, you know, you can choose podcasts, you mm -hmm. can choose all sorts, you can do clubhouse now, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can actually be a part of that, that type of conversation. You can be in it, but something about public radio is it's, it's such a special medium because it's just, it's, it's a deeper experience. I don't know quite, don't quite know how to explain it, but I always feel calm. I feel encouraged. I feel like I want to, when I hear something on radio, when I hear a story, I, I know I can find more information online if I need to. But a lot of times what I hear on radio is just enough, just enough to get me interested. So I am, I am hopeful that whether public radio in the form that exists now, uh, you know, whether it's going to, I'll say this, I think that it's going to change, the voices will change, but I think the tone and the civility will will remain the same. And, I, and that's something I'm, that, I, that makes me feel good about our industry and what, we, what we'll see in the future. So wait, I'm gonna ask you, I loved, the description of things being calm and empowering. I'm going to ask you to um, yeah. give us our outro music here, maybe a piece of music that you find calm and empowering, classical, so-called classical or otherwise, while you think about that. <laughs> Ernesto, how can folks uh, learn more about public media for all or potentially even uh, sign on and support? Everyone can visit publicmediaforall.com. You're also welcome to visit us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And we look forward to speaking to everyone. There are action items, as Sway pointed out a little bit earlier, for allies, for BIPOC, for organizations, and for listeners. And we look forward to seeing you on our website. Absolutely. All right, Sway, what you got? <laughs> All right. So I couldn't come up with a classical piece. I, I actually played violin years and years and years ago, but I'm so removed from the classical world. Uh, so I can't come up with a song, but, I, but I'm open to any recommendations, Garrett. So please don't lose my email. I want to get more connected with classical again, and, and, and especially with you know, the artists that we don't know about. But one of the songs that's really been getting me through tough times is Master KG, uh, Jerusalem. And it's just one of those songs that 
It's a dance song. It's actually one of those songs that has like an electric slide type of dance to it. Okay. But it it puts me in such a great mood. The the song message is uh I believe it's in I believe the artist is Nigerian and please don't put this in this in the sure, recording sure. <laughs> if I'm wrong. <laughs> but you know, he's saying the the lyrics translate to Jerusalem is my home. Guard me. Walk with me. Do not leave me here. Jerusalem is my home. Uh, my place is not here. My kingdom is not here. Guard me. Walk with me. I, it's just something about the way he sings it. And he sings it over and over. And then the music is, its you can move to it. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel happy. It makes you feel safe. So that is, that is a song that's getting me going well 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 we'll listen to a little bit of that ernesto sway thank you so much for being on today thank you so much it's thank been so, you much, so fun. much for having us Scott, I wanted to read one of the action items uh, for you here on publicmediaforall.com and get your reaction. Um, it says, uh, recognize that white staff and leaders have not been doing enough DEI work while implicitly and or explicitly enacting racial bias against people of color co-workers. You, you often reflect back on I think you said opus eight mm -hmm. of Triloquy shout out to Devon where you really began to grapple with white privilege and what that meant uh it for for you personally and professionally what were your next steps what what did what did you go through in the coming weeks or months to sort of reconcile what you needed to do about those feelings that you had first you have to get your arms around the scope of it because you can listen to a lot of conversations about it and think oh, that sounds terrible, and not immediately connect it to something that happened in your past or, or that you might be doing right in the moment. Mm -hmm. So you, gotta, you, you have to first identify where your priv privilege is. And after that, you have to realize that just because you have that one realization doesn't mean that you're done. You will keep finding them. Um, and it's work that you are going to have to do on your own. You, you, you should not walk up to somebody or be in a panel situation or a conference and ask as a white person what can i do <laughs> tell them to again, Scott. tell them again <laughs> don't don't go into a panel and say as a white person what can i do to no what you you, you need to identify your blind spots and then do your own research and hopefully at this point you have some friends who are generous some you know like i have you to talk to talk about a lot of these issues and you're very generous with your patients and i think that if you can do that if you can find somebody to practice with that's your next step you're lucky you're better at ableton than i am that's why i have patience i'm kidding <laughs> man Telling you. Okay, Triloquy, fourth movement. <laughs> it's no surprise that Jim Crow is making a fairly vigorous comeback in New York City's public schools. Under the rule of Chancellor Richard Carranza, the city has spent millions of dollars training administrators and teachers to fight something called implicit bias and achieve racial equity. We know where this is going. Scott, I want you to say one good thing about Tucker Carlson. 
I think he has perfectly sized hands. <laughs> and, and, we, and good thing we never see them. <laughs> okay, listen. This is not the politics podcast. I think anywhere the word equity is being used inappropriately or being misconstrued, it's my business. And it's the arts business. If anybody in the arts wants to talk about what racial equity is, I need people to stop acting like this is something funny. I was I watch Fox News, Fox News for entertainment, Scott. They've the been, America Channel, isn't that what you call the, it? Yeah, what's happening on America today. Uh, they've been throwing in the past couple of weeks, they've been throwing out this word equity in light of Biden's executive action plan for racial equity mm-hmm. uh, saying, Oh, well, somebody it's just a made up word. Somebody just misspelled equality. And uh, okay, listen, it is everybody's responsibility. When you hear conversations like that, when you see rhetoric like that, you need to correct them. And it's simple, Scott. I think it's simple. I think of equality as everyone having the same. I think of equity as acknowledging that everyone does not have the tools to have the same based on insert factor here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When it comes to Biden's executive plan, when it comes to this podcast and other things that happens to be racial equity. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is not difficult at this point. Folks are, are willfully being ignorant and I'm tired. I'm tired. What would be your elevator um, explanation of equality versus equity? Equality would be 400 years of nothing but black music. And then we're equal. Now, and think about this, 400 years of what else happened to us against white people? Hmm. Uh, huh. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> you realize the ballet This steps? is triloquy. This is called triloquy. <laughs> right. And you saw me very gingerly dancing around the topic, but... That's where I landed. I mean, we get to see we get we get to see LeVar Burton getting whipped, right? So <laughs> Well, let me equality, right. equality, right? So let me say, if this is my elevator pitch or my elevator description and I'm only going from one floor to the next. <laughs> <laughs> you said this is a tall elevator we need to be in. <laughs> right. No, what I, I guess what I would say is uh, you, know, you don't you don't want to be whipped like the like uh enslaved black people were, do you? That tickles me to death. Yes, fine. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Tell the white person in the in the elevator, equality is you getting whipped. Equity is dealing so, with the fact that their ancestors were whipped. That's in between the first and second floor. <laughs> and then if you have to go to the fifth, if a fight ensues, so be it. Whatever. Right. I like that. I'm going to use that from now on. Thank you for that, Scott. Look at, look at you being an accomplice to me. <laughs> that escalated quickly. Okay, look. Uh, Triloquy number two. Shout out to everybody who tuned in to the Sphinx panel that I was on. I'm I'm not going to rehash anything. I just want to say, once again, a huge shout out to James Bennett II. We good. We had a conversation this morning about some of the things that happened on the panel. Um, I'll I'll just tell you, Scott, because you weren't there. The phrase, I like my job and I want to keep my job was said. Okay. Yes, that gets a little giggle out of the people on the panel that are employed by major 
public media institutions. Oh, everyone except for me. So am I supposed to also laugh or did I have a leg to stand on for being upset? Yeah, you got two of them. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So I just went right over to the WQXR website. You, you want to talk about something? Let's see what's playing. But but anyway, James Bennett the second and I are good. I actually invited James um, on Triloquy for uh, the end of the month. So I hope he's. I hope he says yes. I I, uh, I gave him until uh, cool. the end of the week to to think about it. But cool. I just wanted the people to know that we good. I'm rooting for everybody black. So I'm I'm all about building the bridges. I don't want beef. I don't think we have time for it. We we, we have to we have to press forward. So huge shout out to James Bennett II and uh, everybody over at WQXR who is empowering black people to uh, tell our stories. Last quick thing uh, I wanted to bring up, and then we'll be done for the day. I talked about this on Instagram. I did a little quick Instagram uh, thing today. So. As I said there, a school asked me to do a talk. The teacher there thought it was so important for me to talk, wasn't sure if the school would pay for me to do it. So she said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll pay you out of my pocket. I think that is, I'm, I'm really flattered by that. You know, I, I want to start by saying that, and that happens to me a lot. A lot of people talk about, you know, um, paying um, out of pocket uh, for that sort of thing. My challenge to those folks is make your institution pay. I appreciate your wanting to, you know, show me, you're wanting to show me that you believe in this. I would rather you show me that you believe in this so much that you're going to push the institution to find a place in their budget to pay me or to pay whoever you you want to bring in to to do whatever. You know, one of the things here uh, on the uh, public media for all uh, initiatives says to uh, bring in outside people. So in DEI work, that is a part of it. Every institution has to talk about who they're bringing in because it has to be somebody. If y'all had everybody you needed, you your your staff would look different mm-hmm. and, and your content or whatever you're doing will look different. So we, we have to push the institutions to prioritize this, not only with their words, but with their dollars. It kind of sounds like you're saying if your organization's DEI initiative doesn't have a budget line, it says a lot about the seriousness of that initiative. I I will I will agree there. And we talk about being an accomplice, not an ally. I think that is a great example of what it means to be an accomplice. I think a a, a beautiful thing for an ally to do is to use their own resources to make sure something can happen. I think an accomplice makes a way for me and other creators and whoever you're trying to get to have a place in the structure of that institution. You have they have to find money somewhere to to make it all work. So that, that that that's my word on that. I know a lot of black people are busy during Black History Month. They love to hire us in February. So as as you traverse that this month, please keep that in mind and to the potential accomplices and to the allies, pay attention to that as well. Make your school pay for this. Tell them that the the Christmas program can use a few uh, fewer lights this year right. because we need to talk about something else, you know, something black. Make them pay and make them listen. I think that's important as well. Make them really, really listen, especially to Triloquy, right, Scott? Right on, right on. <laughs> See y'all next week. And that's it.